0: This is a very special episode of Through the Wind Door, News of the Century. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another trip th- through the Windor. This is News of the Century, Panther Soul Edition. By now, both Toby and I have had a chance to read the book, have had a chance to sit with it, as opposed to the last time where Toby was literally fresh off of reading it when we started recording. So I think that Toby and I can thoroughly agree that this particular book is a very satisfying read just a, just a fascinating little story that we thoroughly enjoyed picking our way through you know piece by piece as it went along its way showing us this new world of cats wouldn't you agree sir Yes,
1: yeah, so i thought that it had a wholly satisfying arc to it that felt like it could you know just satisfy on a sort of Very subdued level. I picked through it, and it just washed over me like a cool water.
0: Hmm. Also, this book was fucking amazing. It's so (laughs) fucking good. (laughs) I'm sorry, like that. Yeah, I. That's about as far of a bit that I could do about trying to discuss this story like Siskel and Ebert might uh, a movie or something like that. Mm. Uh, I just... Look, I I want to have a heated uh, argument with
1: you tonight, Greg, because I am going to say that Panther Soul is very, very good, and you will say, I disagree, sir. I think it is very, very, very good.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, so... Mm. We're going to touch on a number of different aspects as to why we responded to the story the way we did. And...
1: Oh, Panthers.
0: <laughs> well, okay. So, yes. On a there... special
1: episode entitled Thirsty for Panthers.
0: <laughs> Panther Soul, Midnight Edition. As in <laughs> Midnight Black. No, I okay no that... <laughs> I'm, I'm turning it down i'm turning it down <laughs> Yeah. okay fair enough yeah yeah i still thoroughly love stone string maidens for what it did yeah like i don't think any of us i don't think either of us would disagree that stone string maidens should be lauded for the places that it went and the different kind of story that it was telling and the way it tied together so many different elements, we still love that book for all the reasons that we said we did back when we did, you know, a podcast on it. Mm. But even for all that, when I first read this book, I mean, you took it far more slowly than I did, primarily mm. because that's the way you read. And I mm. just tend to devour these things if I find whatever it is compelling at all. It just tends to be how I operate. I only read more slowly when this is a story that I'm familiar with and I can therefore take my time. I don't need to find out what happens next. I know Mm. what happens next and I just want to appreciate the familiar places that that story took me.
1: Mm. But... Stay in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Hook it to my veins as the initial experience.
0: Mm. But... When I was reading this book, you know, I was I was coming along. I was okay. I was I see what he's doing here. I see what he's doing there. I was my brain was far more in a deconstructive mode. As it'd be like, oh, okay, so that's how they're gonna handle that. And okay, I see what they're tr- doing with this character over here. You know, seeing that there was a bunch of Guardians One and Guardians Two in there, a bunch of the Brendan Fraser Mummy movies a bunch of Indiana Jones.
1: Mm A bit of Legend of Zelda.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the further I got into the book, I want to say somewhere close to the midpoint, it -hmm. just started really hitting home for me emotionally as we went through the various arcs of our characters. I want to say particularly around the point where we finally get to see beatrix's story what what her situation was back during tiger's eye which we had already been like discussing for oh weeks God, and yeah. months at that point and mm. it just sort of completely floored me it's it, such
1: it, a trip i don't mean to step on your words please carry on no no, I no it's can't okay help yeah. but let these reactions flow out of me spill yeah. out
0: of me yeah yeah at the same time the quality of the hero's opponents in this story also brought out a similar powerful emotional reaction in a way that few others actually do. Like I may have had a strong reaction to Calendula in Stone Spring Maidens, Mm -hmm. but in comparison, like if if we're gonna be putting these things on a chart, you got Calendula at one end, who is not necessarily a nice person, but is definitely not the worst a person could ever be. And then mm-hmm. you have, if you're comparing, the, then you suddenly have put Shrike sort of in the middle of it, almost worse than Mohawk in a way, because Mohawk doesn't... he, he is all id and mm-hmm. no real... Like, he's malicious, but you don't get a feeling like there is any kind of deliberateness behind this maliciousness. Mm -hmm. He does what he does because he enjoys having power over others. Shrike feels like more than that because... And at the same time, while I may understand where she came from, why she is the Mm -hmm. way she is, that doesn't make her not worse because she can be coldly methodical when she wants to. And she has her own purpose that she will not be diverted from, but Shrike. will still take a moment to, to just be a complete bastard if she feels like it.
1: Shrike is such a fantastically deliberate name for her mm, character, mm, because mm. to me, it sounds like sp- And Mm -hmm. that is what it is Is that uh, Mohawk is just This sort of unchecked Sort of force of Maliciousness as you Mm -hmm. say Shrike is this Targeted sharp Spite Mm -hmm. She is a spiteful Creature that Has such A wealth of Anger that she uses to Stab at the world And Mm -hmm. it's this Thing where that's the verb I associate with her, like to the point that she, it's she's such a a character that you see everything that she is. And as you say, I there's the villains in this. As you say, there's a quality to them that took me quite aback. And we're going into full spoilers here, just to emphasise full spoilers. This is listen to this after you're done with the book or the audio drama that whatever even after both of the main villains are gone they're disposed there is this feeling of just like we didn't we haven't declawed them entirely that they have left lasting damage and i think the fact that she is characterized by having this like scar across one of her eyes, or she has... is she missing an eye entirely? I forget, but...
0: She has... I'm trying to remember now myself. She has damage across her eye. I don't don't remember if that means that she's actually blind in that eye. She may be. Going back, I confirm that she is, which honestly makes her skill in the ring even more impressive than it already is. Mm. Um, it, it, It certainly doesn't make her less dangerous, however. No, uh, I mean that. That's that's one of the major confrontations of the book is her fight with Colo uh, during one of the mm-hmm. during the midpoint, and she almost wins. That yeah. gives you a sense of just how dangerous she actually is. But mm-hmm. so I, I was measuring these things on a bit of a scale here of like lasting villains, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So we've got Calendula, we've got Shrike. I think I would put Seth immediately after that because. He and are we
1: going in descending, like just. Descending
0: thrust? as in as in more dangerous, darker. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Ball of Set, villainousness. Yeah, exactly. I'm not if entirely convinced of yeah. Sith as being a complete villain, but the point Me is either. is that he doesn't seem to actually value human life. If Mm. he cares about anything, he cares about things that he feels he can sympathize with. He sympathizes with the Wendigo for some reason, Mm. which, you know, we don't entirely know yet. And he sympathizes with Haral because he feels a kinship with her, but he has no problem doing something like exposing humans to the plague through his blood and essentially mm-hmm. killing them because even if they're becoming Wendigo, he is still destroying the, the, the people that they were. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a transformation, but it's a transformation that is death of the psyche, death of the mm-hmm. spirit. Not to go too far off on this tracks, and Seth is somewhere we're going to get into soon when we cover Arlington, but to externalize the thought right now, Alex commented once on the idea of doing a Dracula type story. And to be honest, part of me thinks he already has in the characterization of Seth, making more of what he might consider his own kind out of other humans deliberately. Like Dracula, he is a powerful apex predator. Um, These
1: villains are threats to what we value, or mm-hmm. our heroes, our protagonists value. And mm-hmm. while Calendula may not be positioned as like much of a... Quote unquote villain, in the terms of she's not a sort of antagonistic captain or a, a like commander of army, but she nevertheless is positioned as a threat to what we value and what we want to see flourish. That's why I think that you can look at this as this sort of spectrum mm. in this way. And I think that as much as, as you say, Seth is not like motivated by purely just destruction for destruction's sake there is something that he is trying to build yeah he is nevertheless holding a knife to the throat of humanity
0: yeah well if i had to have one quality that that i would say is central to this descending order that we have here it is what these people will do what kind of code that they live by? How far down the morality abyss they w- they would be willing to go to achieve their own goals? Mm. And that's why Mog has to be placed at the far end, because as we have seen throughout the course of this story, there is nothing she will not do. She is the blackest of monsters, and that's why she has to. She had to be ended at the end there. And she didn't even, she wasn't even ended by any of those present. They couldn't. It had to be destroyed by literally herself. Like the fire consumed her, but the fire just exposed her for what she was to herself, her complete depravity. And that's an altogether fitting end, but it also just sort of cements home That she was such a toxic influence, that her own evil destroyed her, Mm. basically.
1: This is an audio format Mm. that you're experiencing our conversation through. If it was visual, you would be seeing my face frozen in horror, because Marg is fucking terrifying yes every encounter everything we've talked about these other characters the i'm blanking on the name because i think maug just sort of dominated my mind in terms of like the sort of horrifying uh, eldritch entity but the character in uncivil outlaw and steamheart in the yagana is it yagana Mm -hmm. yeah
0: yeah I absolutely kind of have to agree with Toby here in terms of fear dependent on something alien. Yagana is scary because we don't understand her, and parts of how we experience her just set off our feelings of wrongness. And yet after the interview with Alex and Sharon post-Uncivil Outlaw, I'm willing to entertain that she might not actually be a complete villain. More simply, a darker version of Merlane. Mog, unfortunately is all too understandable. We may not know exactly what her deal is, as she is also shrouded in mystery that mythology only hints at. But the things that make her pitch black are things we can experience in our own lives. She is not Cthulhu, dark and unknowable. She just has great power and the will to use it, like Seth. So, uh, like, we've had conversations
1: about a character like this before, someone who everything about them screams nope,
0: mm-hmm. just
1: serious nope mm-hmm. energy. Yep. And yet, and yet, the characters are conveying mm-hmm. this palpable feeling of attraction towards them that when James actually sees Yagana's face, it's he had expected it to be something repulsive but he found what he found and said was something enthralling compelling and mag time after time after time is just like immense everything about her is immense her size her stature her like power but it's not just physical or supernatural power it is
0: her ability to bend you to her will exactly and, and make you feel. Like, not just that's to make what you, you want. feel not not just to make you feel like that's what you want, but to have a part of you believe that that's what you want, and have this have another part of you screaming in terror because you know exactly what she is. Mm-hmm. It's
1: being torn in two different directions of staring into the abyss and the abyss not just staring back but mm-hmm. pulling you in. And that Maug oh my god, I was not expecting it. We we've seen artwork for a lot of the characters in Panther Soul before we actually got the final text. So when we saw artwork of Maug, I was like, Oh, okay, this is a sort of well, cool. No,
0: no, hold on a second. That's that we haven't seen the artwork of Maug.
1: Isn't she on the N- front cover? No.
0: The cover has I, I double checked this. The cover has um oh wait, you know what, all of a sudden I'm not sure. I, w- I assume because of the scarring on her face that the two in the upper right hand, in the upper corners, were Stardancer and Shrike.
1: Well, God. no, Shrike has to be a lion, and that is very yes, much a lion. Yes, you're method. right.
0: Duh, okay. Oh, t- yeah, okay, no, I screwed up on that one then. You're absolutely mm. right, because because that's also her coloring right there.
1: Mm. I,
0: got, I think I got confused at a certain point because... It looked like she had damage to one of her eyes, and therefore I was associating that with Shrike instead. Also, I just assumed that the two figures would represent opponents from different sides of the fight, since Stardancer does, after all, work as the right hand of Maug. I mean, she has a changing form. She is basically doing that thing where she absorbs the life energy Mm -hmm. of another person to become incredibly beautiful. And when this... she
1: isn't, she is she... crumbling. Mm, yeah, exactly. And so that's this... what we're seeing on the like the right side yeah, of her okay. face.
0: You're right. You're absolutely right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> to get back to it, it's just I like it's a mission of mine to emphasise the abilities of the writing here because mm-hmm. like New Century is, I think, primarily engaged with as an audio drama, that tends to be, I think, of what a lot of people default to because it's a very accessible way of experiencing the stories. But I think that as the books come out, it's really important to say the writing sells all of this. That yes. well, I see the artwork of Marg, I go like, oh wow, that's a sort of like compelling image. It's the writing that has seeped into my skin, into my mind, and Mm -hmm. it puts you in the position of the characters under her thrall, and Mm -hmm. that is a place I would not want anyone to be in. It's terrifying.
0: Well, the thing that I was attempting to lead up to when I was first starting to talk about this is that when I began reading this book... I was still very much in a deconstructive mindset the further mm-hmm. I get sucked in with with Beatrix's around that midpoint and the um Beatrix and the fight with Shrike I think is one it just sort of really just it was like a singularity drawing me in and I just had to I had to, I had to know what happened next what happened after that what happened mm-hmm. after that the further it goes with its emotional weight and its conversations and its story beats And then it comes to that huge tiered climax at the Mm -hmm. end. The words that Alex uses to set the scene emphasize the desperation and the seeming insurmountability of it all. It felt like all of the most intense climaxes that I could name that I would feel like he would be drawing on to encompass that idea. I, I was there in that moment. It was End of Guardians 1, End of Guardians 2. It was the damn fight scene in Dark Fate, Terminator Dark Fate. It was the final fight with the, um, I don't even remember what they were now, the, the uh, horrible enemy in Serenity, The the things that were pirates that were like hmm. mindless killers or whatever they were. That would be the Reavers, first introduced in the show Firefly, but I don't feel like getting onto a in tangent, so moving on. It was all of that, and then it kept pulling from, it, it, it went from that level of emotionality, also the whole thing with the fire felt like, you know, the the... Quill trying to maintain control of the power gem at the end of Guardians 1, right. that one experience,
1: yeah. along with,
0: like, uh, I could probably name a couple other sources that felt like that was drawing on, but that was an emotional thing right there. Mm. And then they're they're fighting off the Albion army, and then all of a sudden, out of fucking nowhere, they have Voltron. Or, yeah, or, or, cat zords! <laughs> yeah, exactly, it's just like, it, it it was at that point where i was literally typing into discord i was like what 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 <laughs> like i was not prepared for 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 it to go there and and now all of a sudden we're having that fight scene you know so, that, so that then they finally calm down from there and they they they've defeated their opponents and you know they're starting to have a more quiet moment as they start to realize okay, this is what we've let ourselves in for, the, the price that has to be paid for bringing this, this, uh, this cat Yeager to life here. But I'm sitting there and going, the story isn't over yet. We still have three chapters left. What the fuck? What, what yeah. is left to talk about? At one point during all of this, and I, I don't remember when, I was so overwhelmed by the everything of it that I was quoting the movie Contact. You know the bit. That one moment.
1: No words. No words.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to describe. <laughs> <laughs> me. I should have said the poem.
1: So beautiful. Beautiful. So beautiful. So beautiful.
0: No idea. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> oh. It's... I think I'm. I think I'm getting more emotionally animated than I have than I uh, during any of our previous that's, podcasts. That's, that's
1: quite all right. It's <laughs> and and we've jumped to the end. It's like I want to convey the journey as well, but I think that it would also. It's the sincerest thing in the world is to like talk about how it ends. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I think that there was a point early on. When I was thinking, okay, wait—is Stardancer and their companions they are abducting cats? Wait, does that mean did they abduct Carol? Like, is that what where it's? Thinking? And then you see what happens. I was like, okay, no, that's not how it went. And I just sort of put that to the side. I was like, okay, don't forget about that. And then by the end, I was just like, no, 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 and oh my god, by yeah. the end, it was just, like, uh And I, I I, reached out to Alex afterwards, and he said that that reunion is what he had in mind since he wrote the original disappearance of uh, Carol all the way back in Tiger's Eye, that he knew that this would be a destination where we would reach. It was mm-hmm. just, but that didn't make the pain in the journey that we would need to take to get there any later it's still mm-hmm. really hard i ah oh, it's it's so good because i mean it it's a mystery that that like, kind of feels so well earned because of the way that time works, I know you brought this up, is that we never really know how much time has passed since. Mm, mm. It could have been something that happened relatively recently within the past couple of years, or it could have been a very long time ago. Mm. So we spend all this time with this mature tiger who's been a part of this cult for far too long, and they're finally free and they're able to lead a new life. And you don't, it doesn't cross your mind that it's perhaps been long enough that this tiger is one that we saw all that time ago. And as you're seeing all of the clues come into place, you go, when Frau and Carol were together and practicing hunting, she describes what they did together as dancing. Mm -hmm. Of course, like that was star dancer. Of Mm -hmm. course, that was where this led. And, it's just, uh, I. Okay, this is this is a good place to go into how we feel about the like protagonist characters and, okay. like, yeah, who the, should we start with because
0: they're they're all good. They're, yeah, they're the, all good. <laughs> here's the overarching thing that I want to say here. Yes, please. Um, we do that? The thing that I at least often come back to is. The significance of that one monologue that Alex did coming out of Guardians of the Galaxy 2 as being like a formative moment in my experience of listening to School of Movies and to anything that he ever said, because prior to that, what they were doing was enjoyable, but it wasn't necessarily something that I was champing at the bit to hear every next thing that they were going to be talking about it just sort of hit me emotionally that be like okay i i have to i have to find out like if 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 he can do this to me then imagine what other places th- this this could potentially go but having said that the thing that i enjoyed about it wasn't about what he brought to Well, excuse me, he brought his experience to the experience of watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2. It's very personal to him. Mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily get all of the same stuff out of that movie. I've listened to what he's had to say. I've listened to what Lindsay Ellis has had to say. I've listened to what a few other people have had to say. And I can appreciate that there is definitely emotional arcs going on there. And that there is good storytelling going on there. And I I like that, you know, other people can enjoy it to that level. My problem with the Guardians movies is that some of the characters are people that I can really kind of... Not that I can do without exactly, but I don't really like all of them all that much. Mm -hmm. I like like Gamora. I can be incredibly sympathetic to um, the experience of Rocket and Groot.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Quill just he can be funny, but he can also kind of make me exhausted. And some of Drax's chosen humor just completely sets me off, even when he has other moments that really sort of hit home and make me appreciate him as a character. My point is is that i'm not I'm not a hundred percent with any of them mm-hmm. as being a part. and and that affects my appreciation of the media that they're in
1: i didn't know, that's fair
0: i do not feel the same way about panther soul i am ride no. or die for this group of people completely and i know that alex was concerned that maybe we wouldn't find his some of his protagonists particularly sympathetic i think he was worried about our response to Colo, I think that he was worried about our response to, you know, would we be willing to forgive Beatrix after what she's been through? You know, and Leah, of course, she herself is in this place where she's a the, the, the good, you know, princess of thieves, so to speak, in a way that's kind of separate from what Robin was doing in The Princess Thieves, because mm-hmm. she's, you know, she's closer to a gang leader than she is to a group of merry men or anything like that we actually never see a whole lot of the rest of the group that robin belongs to um Mm -hmm. in this it mean they're sort of off to one side and much the way that the other cubs and bastarian are off to one side in
1: that sense i do wonder if like i almost I pronounce it liar because uh, at one point I think even Colo is saying like, she's of saying, course oh, she's, she's a liar. She. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I think that in that sense she's kind of a more successful gang leader than mm-hmm. Robin might be because I think that Robin has sort of aspirations of married men because that's just like what the character archetype he's trying to uh, yeah. deliver to people is. His dynamic with other people extends as far as You know Oberon, but I think you see Lyra not only work with other members of her group, but actually leave instructions. Like, does a lot of like she comes back, she checks on them, says like I'm going to keep checking on you. So I think that she's proven to be successful and not only that but to be invested in maintaining this she's very good at managing that but um she's
0: got the charisma of robin but the 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 ability to think and plan like scarlet Wilhelmina.
1: yes yeah. exactly and i think it's very important that she comes from this place of like uh, it's a combination of her being The younger character so it's Mm -hmm. from this position of a younger generation that like sees the unfairness uh, that Mm. that a society run by adults is pushing down and mistreating the people who are both literally and figuratively smaller than them and also the fact that she is a a lynx is that right mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah and that means that she is smaller than a lot of the other great cats which means that they get overlooked they get mm-hmm. uh, it's it's something which means that she puts a lot of work to or she has aspirations of like making sure that no one gets overlooked which mm-hmm. i think is you know very sort of in line with what Robin is motivated by, but I think that, of, of course, uh, Robin also actually, in the fiction of uh, Princess Thieves, he belongs to the like race that is the social hierarchy, is at the top of the social hierarchy. So, Yeah, in theory, that-
0: he could, in theory, he has the highest level of privilege that hmm. could be available in that society, even though we eventually find out that his father was not particularly well off and mm. was abusive, partly possibly because of that and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um mm. When you were saying a moment ago about knowing what it is to be on the bottom of privilege though, made me think a lot about Scarlett Wilhelmina's conversation with Baltus about, mm. yeah, she is, she, she knows that she's on the lowest rung which means that she has the most empathy for people that have so little social power and everything like that and it's part of the reason why she does what she does and it's
1: important to her that they don't steal from people who are seriously worried where their next Mm -hmm. meal is coming from because the whole point is she knows not only her position, but as you say, she has that empathy for others that may not be in the exact same circumstances as her. But if they are in adjacent circumstances, she is not going to take from that. It's the sort of way you don't mock or belittle people below you. You do it above you. Like, that's mm-hmm. the point is you have to punch up. You steal from the rung above, not from the same rung you're on or worse, the rung below you. Yeah. Yeah, it's as an aside i found it uh very funny because i was thinking oh wow this this character definitely has a lot of Pinkie pie sort of from <laughs> the friendship is magic my little mm-hmm. pony series i'm i tips glasses very well read as an animation scholar i'll have you know um mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but oh. the, the fact that it's this little energetic pink character with a lizard pet on their shoulder that's a little like crocodile lizard thing i was mentioning this to alex and he had a dot 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 google's oh crap moment
0: (laughs) (laughs) well the thing that i got the most off of laia was again i still actually have to finish reading the source material i got distracted because uh in the middle of reading northern lights that's when Stone String Maidens dropped. So I had was focused on that and then now then I had Panther Soul. And in the coming weekend I'm gonna have you know uh, Nightfall of the Wendigo, so I still actually have to get back to that. But okay. based on my experience of his Dark Materials, the T V show, the, the heavy vibe that I was getting off of Lyra was literally Lyra Silverton. Mm-hmm. D- there's nothing that hits that home more than when she's taken in by Mog, and we worry that it seems like she is completely under Mog's thrall, Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: there is a little bit of back and forth on that, on her trying to get through to Mm Stardancer, even as Mog is continuing to try and impose her will on Laia. It's like, even as it seems like She's she's gone under to it. She keeps on finding these alone moments in order to chip away at Stardancer's certainty. And it mm-hmm. feels like very much the kind of, you know, behind-the-back skullduggery that Lyra, in, in his Dark Materials, would be up to mm. in terms of not showing you her whole hand, pretending to be one thing while she's working on another. Yeah. Um, so, and on top of that, one of the most brilliant parts of Laia's arc in this story uh-huh. feels like it was pulling from The Last Jedi because of the revelation of, it was like, so wait, am, am I a princess? He's like, my dear, we refer to all of our female children as princess. Mm-hmm. That's just something we do here. Mm-hmm. Your father was a carpenter. Your mother was a dentist. And I was yeah. just like, yes, I love, I love that, you know, mm. she she is important because of who she is. She was not actually this this royalty that she thought she was, you know, that mm. she was destined to come home to this kind of thing uh, when they were as a part of their journey recovering the cloudbreaker and everything okay. like that. So that was
1: absolutely what I wanted to bring up because, like, it could be there's certainly like adjacencies to uh, the last Jedi, but I think that both moments are very much sort of born of that philosophy of like you don't have to be the like chosen one. In fact, like you know, just go back to Princess Thieves. The whole point is that mm. Gwendolyn was not the born yeah. of the monarchy princess that <laughs> so. Like it's all in there, you know. All Raven going like, "You're the child of the prophecy." Really? No, (laughs) (laughs) you jackass. Um, So it's it's everywhere. There will never like I. There will never be a character who is like you know special because of who they are. And you want to know how? Like I can sort of point to another example of that. And I want to keep this to liar, but I will bring this up we like Stardancer so much before we know who they are, or mm. who they were rather. Like yeah. We do know who they are, that's the point. We get to know who they are, and then we find out they're Harker's Cub. And yeah. we go, oh my god, that's amazing. But mm-hmm. like, it's not that you're like, oh my god, we finally found Carl. It's, I'm so happy because I've become invested in not just Krau but Stardancer, and this mm-hmm. means the world to these two characters. And Stardancer is important not because they are Krau's cub, but because through their own efforts they get to this point. And yes, that's,
0: that's that's the critical point, is that it's maybe a culmination as far as Krau's story is concerned, but the more important culmination is that Stardancer has to heal after all of these experiences. Mm-hmm. Finding their family again is a part of that process. Mm-hmm. So it's just... And that, that's kind of... Alex has talked a little bit about how his plans for this story changed over the course of trying to figure out what was important and that how ended up taking, like, almost not being part of the story at all, because, A, he wanted to focus on this cast of characters, the way they played off of each other, and the way that they had to solve their own problems without the understandably sort of superior power of Frau at that point, who had already been through her own experience in Steamheart, and now is in this position where she was very difficult to kill because she has part of Seth's magical healing ability and everything like that. Hmm. But it was also about Stardancer getting themselves to a place where they would be able to break free of Mog themselves, rather Hmm. than it being about Hrow rescuing them from this unspeakable evil if there's anything that this story really sells home is the importance of the individual arcs of all of these broken people dealing with their past trauma and the mistakes that they've made along the way but finding it within themselves to do the right thing and to turn away from to stop believing that they can't be good because they've made so many mistakes along the way. And mm. you can... You, I don't have personal experience about what it means to be under the control of a cult or anything like that, but if there's one thing that I can appreciate, it's that... Did you ever actually read the uh, World War Z book? The, the thing that started started part of this whole thing off to begin with?
1: Unfortunately, I recall listening to a number of the chapters of the audio book, but I know that's kind of a different beast, somewhat to the original text. But uh,
0: not necessarily. No, it 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 it, it includes most of the same vignette. It includes the same vignettes. It's just Mm -hmm. um, it 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 vocalizes them. That's all. I I've done the same. I I read the entire book, and then I listened to. Some of the stories that Alex sent along to me, which was an interesting experience because a lot of these are famous voice actors or actors playing out these roles. But the story that comes to mind from that was something involving the Russian army and how uh-huh. in order to keep the troops in line, in, in in order to keep them loyal, in order to keep them doing what the higher ups said. If someone disobeyed, they basically made the rest of the group responsible for carrying out the punishment. Mm -hmm. They would literally decimate their internal group. And that made them feel like they were guilty for having killed one of their own. That made them afraid and guilty. And basically they were prisoners of themselves at that point. And that's a Mm. major component of what Mog had her quote unquote children do. She provided them with the supposed love, unconditional love and support, and then made them privy to horrific acts, even if it was only collecting The victims that she would feed upon so that she could maintain her strength and her beauty. And that's incredibly (sighs) deleterious to one's own self worth is to feel responsible. Yeah, exactly. To feel responsible for that level of darkness and like the only person that will accept you after having done that is the person that asked you to do it and to begin
1: and i think that's why marg is a perfect antagonist in this book because everything about her is about losing yourself about feeling like you are not worth anything unless you are loved by this mm-hmm. like unstoppable and unbendable force mm-hmm. and you're sort of so unsure who it should be to bring down Marg and like you say in the end it's actually this sort of natural force that means that she collapses under the weight of uh, all the many lives that she has stolen from to extend her own life and that just implodes her but it's ultimately liar who is able to push her to mm. the the cliff's edge so that she can topple in and face that fate. And I think that the reason why she holds so well in that situation is because of that sense of self that yeah. she has, that she is able to still come, like, like be subjected to Maug's influence but hold on to enough of herself and enough of like her own observation that she is able to actually say no you are a bad mother and i think that's what this is about is all of these cats these characters have over the years kind of created an image of themselves based on what other people who have mistreated them have told them they are just the fact that they build this new idea of who they can be and part of it is that they build it together but in each case it's something they come to themselves and I think that's why everything with I'm I'm bouncing between characters, but this is the this is the synergy of this book. Like you say, it's ride or die because uh, th- this is a book with all perspectives shared, and it means that you are. I'm going to ba- I'm going to pull a colo and misname uh, Liar's uh, little lizard friend, uh, Scrunchy, Munchy. Crunchy, 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 Crunchy. Okay. Um, Crunchy, like we just hop from shoulder to shoulder, and we sort of say, like, encouraging lizard noises uh, as they go on their own journey. But um, Beatrix, we 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 talked about how there was that uncertainty of would we like her? would we forgive her after seeing the person that she presented herself to be in Tiger's Eye. And at that point, that's all we knew about her. And it's so fortuitous that we happen to do all those hours of introspection and wondering, is there more to Beatrix? Because Mm -hmm. it just sort of primed us for this situation where we actually, it comes as a huge shock because you, the first, the opening prologue happens and you're like, yay, she's in this place. And because you're, like seeing from her point of view you know that she's sincere in all of this this isn't Mm -hmm. like a oh is she working an angle no you are seeing her thoughts you know the amount of self-loathing she has for herself even as she's trying to kind of bury that under a sort of displaced loathing of the other lions that are still participating in this slave trade and you're you're like, oh, I'm so happy you're here. I I don't know what happened in between. Like, we saw the seeds of this, but now we see, Mm -hmm. like, the flowers have all bloomed. And Mm -hmm. then you get to that middle section and it's some of the hardest reading you'll do in the entire series because it is about seeing how this awful... Inescapable situation is one that doesn't, you don't one day find, like, what happens to Kolo is one of those situations where each of his numerous lives is something that, like, is a sudden, distinct change. I think that's the difference between Beatrix's journey and Colo's journey is that he can actually divide his life because a lot of it has actually been marked by very identifiable moments that shifted the trajectory of his life and who was controlling his destiny. Well, see, that's, that's
0: the biggest thing right there is that a lot of what happens to Kolo are his responses to things that happened to him. Exactly. He is, he he has his, his time with, you know, his original family with the Panthers, uh, Mm -hmm. which we find out only much later is actual, was, his father was Shala this whole time. Which, that that was its own suddenly, what? Um, There's so many wah
1: moments in yeah, this. Exactly.
0: Like, so like, many I, wah moments. Wah? Anyone,
1: but, anyone who was on the Discord saw like the reaction I had, because this is the fun thing about these last two books, and it's the format I'm going to do for all of my first readings from here on out is just essentially live-tweeting my reading, but mm-hmm. when I got to the bit where Beatrix just says, like, hi, Dad, and I just did a literal spit take, I was just like, <laughs> what? Yeah, what? 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, I I'm stepped
0: sorry. on your
1: point. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, Kolo, uh,
0: yeah, trying to talk about Colo. Col- uh, you know, he keeps on having these things where he's like, okay, he's captured by Mog, but he finds it in him to escape. But then, then he's captured by somebody else. And now he's put inside the gladiatorial arena. And then, you know, he can, he,
1: he he keeps that ever was.
0: Yes, exactly. And well, he hasn't become the greatest at that point. No, at that, he, he, he's fighting to survive. And then he chooses to lose a fight just to spite his owners, but it was enough to get the attention of Maximus. And then Maximus becomes the focal point of his new life. But even there, he still hasn't, like, he he continues to make choices. That portion of his life ends not because he wants it to end, but because Maximus decides to retire. Mm. That is the first time where he decides to make choices for himself about where it will go. That's where he returns to the arena and be like, okay, now I'm doing this for myself.
1: Oh, yeah, and uh, I'll let you get, continue with your point, but something that occurs to me is that when Kolo says, so I'm free to go, and Maximus says, "Like you could have left like a long time ago, and I think it's this thing of, it's almost like a point of, if at that point Kolo was actually pushing against this, then he really... like. He no that i don't like that because like i don't like that interpretation because i've arrived at because it's, it insinuates that like oh it, like he was maximus's uh, slave uh, in by law but if he had just a, no like my point is more that it's in line with what you're saying is that he's guided by like the waters that are shifting his life to a certain degree but anyway carry on with your point
0: no it's okay there are so many On a slightly separate tangent, there are so many quotable moments in this book, so many perfect distillations, Mm -hmm. not just of the experience of whatever is going on here, but just like profound wisdom when there are moments like, you know, where they're talking about who's the judge of what crimes a person has done, how good a person is. And the answer is, of course, yourself. There's, Mm -hmm. There's few things more true than that. But also just like, you know, the the moment where after Maximus has been killed and Colo is, is internally screaming about your glory to, to himself, about how foolish he feels and it's cost the life of one of the people that matters the most to him, or mm-hmm. his conversation with Beatrix about the difference between a sword and a shield. The shield gives far more options than the sword in terms of the choices that you can make and the opportunities that it gives you. There's so many good, so much good in this book. Like, it, I can't. <laughs> it,
1: it, it's hard to know where to. Like, the, when we started, I was like, the, 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 I like this. I, I like this. I like this. And, like, and just. <laughs> I was on a point and then we went on to Colo because I wanted to talk <laughs> about Kolo, man. Hmm. But like, by, to round off my point on the one point um, before I make another one, I, I'm tripping over words. I am <laughs> tripping over words. But my point I wanted to make with Beatrix is that unlike these sort of distinctions that Colo manages to make to sort of make sense of his life, that has been so chaotic and mm-hmm. i'm really glad that we actually see it in the order we do because mm-hmm. it does add to that feeling that rama is this world where time flows from you know it is today it is yesterday it is tomorrow and or it is tonight i i love all the new ways we play with that you know in the we were doing a little bit of that in the first book with it is not today or mm-hmm. like There's a lot of that now because it's just taken as a given that at this point you're able to follow along with, like, you know, how we talk about this. Anyway, get to the point, Toby, before you think of another five. Beatrix, you see, she makes a series of concessions. Mm -hmm. She is like, okay, well, this is okay. Because by my standards that I have set before, I can maybe shift it a little bit and then a new concession happens and it shifts again and then again and again. And before you know it, she is in this horrible situation. And the way I was putting it is we were all talking about how man Tiger's Eye really blindsides you because you think it's all about one protagonist, and then it's about two, and then by the end of it, with Hucker, he's the secret third protagonist. Well, surprise, fuckers! There was a secret fourth protagonist this whole time!
0: <laughs> but I also think that that wasn't necessarily Alex's original intention. No, but well, doesn't it, it work? Doesn't it, does, it, work? But it does work, and that's the thing, is that I, I, I can understand why he chose to switch it up to make it the way it was and honestly that makes me like it better in some ways if Mm -hmm. only because it feels very strongly and i don't want to get an inflated head about this but it feels very strongly that some of that story some of the way we experience beatrix's arc feels like a direct response to all the time and energy that you and I put into deconstructing what might be going on in her head
1: it's a real sort of head scratcher of a situation because mm-hmm. it's definitely not a like sort of a clean cut thing of oh we interpreted this and we voiced our interpretations and then the writer heard those and was like oh i'm going to do this because then you get into <laughs> sort of like Chicken uh, and
0: territory yeah you,
1: you get into that like oh they were able to see where this is going so we changed it or like mm-hmm. oh we a lot of people didn't like what happened in The Last Jedi, so let's actually make it that Rey is the Emperor's, like, oh, like, I, I don't know, that's just me interpreting it it may not, I don't, I honestly don't care but the point here is that I think that what was going on here is more that, like, we were saying all of this and it, I think Alex was thinking hmm, alright, well okay then, that gets me thinking like, here's the point, is that each set of creators parties whatever are all coming to sort of like we're reflecting on the stories we're voicing our like what we draw from them and those ripples can sort of maybe set off their own independent ripples but it's not like you know it's not links in the chain if that makes sense it's not like a cause and effect of we said this and that determined that the story would happen like this I think that it is a case of like many colours happening and overlapping, but like everything, it, this this is the point. I can't. It's messy and it's brilliant and it's this is. Uh, I'm going on many. Uh, uh, this is what happens. This is what happens, Greg. We, we listen to we we go through a story and we talk about it and we realize. My favourite book in the series. Continues to change, and yet the answer is always the same. It is always the last book I read in the series. (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. Also, you shouldn't put links in chains. Laya would be very unhappy if you put links in chains. God damn it! (laughs) (laughs) Yes! Yes, I got you! I got you good! Got him! (laughs) Damn it! Uh, It it also feels weird, because in the case of Beatrix in particular, I tried not to get too much into this, I tried to stay within the framework of what we knew of Beatrix from Tiger's Eye when I went back to edit our final discussion of it. Um, Wasn't that hard?
1: Wasn't that hard, going back and being like... Mm, we could add so many things about Beatrix now. but Yeah, well, that, not...
0: that's, that's the thing, is that I had to explain that Beatrix was a part of this mental construction that I'd made in terms of what the characters represented to me without talking about some of the framing of Panther Soul. Because there's, there's a direct line there as well, now that I have a f- more full understanding of what she was experiencing inside her own head. I had to keep it within tighter constraints. I can be more honest about that now because this is obviously going to be for people that have, you know, read this far and so to speak. But mm-hmm. yeah, no, the her her entire story just sort of hit like a, a ton of bricks, and I'm like, I was literally saying to Alex, I, I'm going to have to. I'm gonna to have to add something to our our discussion. I'm gonna to have to add some some op ed notes to this because now I have to take this fourth thing into consideration here in a way that I hadn't during our original conversation, mm-hmm. which was already overfull with all of these different points that I were I was trying to link together, like you know like a corkboard with all its frigging red string and everything like that.
1: I think that kind of just shows, doesn't it, that, mm-hmm. that Panther Soul succeeds as a sequel because it's an independent story that works. Like, as much as this could be one of those where you say, oh, you really should read Tiger's Eye first to get the most out of this. And you know that might be true, but I think it actually nevertheless still works as an entry point for the series. But um, I would say that, it's not just that. It makes what came before even better, even mm. richer. It, it, it adds to what came before, and I think that's always the best kind of sequel.
0: And honestly, I couldn't have picked a better place to end part one of our little Skype conversation. So let's end it there for this week. One addendum that I will make is that I want to walk back a little of what I said in the moment about feeling like Through the Wind Door is somehow responsible for the end product of this or any future New Century books. I'm actually fine with the idea that our creative interpretations of Alex's novels has fueled future work, but some of the way I phrased it in the moment felt a little bit like some of the crappy complaints certain areas of the Geekosphere have made in regards to the show WandaVision. Online content creators laying claim to what they think should be happening in a piece of work, and their vision somehow being superior. I'm not down with that. Alex may have given his blessing to us and everyone else to make our own interpretations of his work instead of doing his interpretive roundtables, but the fact that we're currently the only fandom podcast doesn't somehow give us any license or superior insight to Alex's creative work. Toby and I once likened Through the Wind Door to the game's distributor, Steam, but that could be considered a double-edged metaphor, and I don't ever want to make anyone feel like we are claiming ownership of something that won't ever belong to us. We're just here for the ride, and to boost it to others. To play us out, one of my favorite artists of the last ten years, and a banger of a song that I first heard because it was originally used in the Mission Impossible Fallout trailer, and then someone else cut scenes from Uncharted 4 into a similarly framed trailer for that game, complete with the same music. Until next time, this is Imagine Dragons with Friction. the friction.